I have an important message to give today. And not, it's not that any message is not important. Um, but there's a lot that we can learn from the Bible. Um, not just what happened and what it means and why did they do this and what, and what does that mean and what are the origins, but the Bible is the living Word of God, which means it's alive and means it still speaks to us today on what you're going through today and the challenges that you have today. And so today I want to talk about something that every one of us deals with. Every one of us. In different places in life, it's a constant in life. And yet, even though it is a constant life, we get so bowled over and we get so paralyzed when it happens. We think, why is this going on? And God says, this is a constant in life. My message today is entitled, Let's Face It. Conflict is everywhere. It's in businesses. It's in families. It's in marriages. It's in all relationships. It's in the church. Conflict is a constant in life. Even more so, it's a constant in our Christian walk. Why is that, you might ask? Well, the Bible says that we are in conflict with ourselves between our spirit and our flesh. Right? So we have a, a, a fleshly nature. But when we come to God, we receive the, the, the Spirit of God. And so those two are, are always in contrast because they want different things. In fact, when the Bible talks about it in the book of James, it describes this conflict that every Christian faces as a war. Look at this in James 4. James 4, verses 1 and 2, says it this way. Where do wars and fights come from? Among you. Now, it's not talking about the war in Afghanistan or the war in Ukraine or Russia. It's not, it's talking about in us. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasures that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you war. This conflict acknowledges that through our sinful flesh or our sinful nature, the enemy has an open door. He tempts us and does not want us to change because then he would lose his grip on us and how he affects us in our daily lives. So when you start doing good things for God, he does things to try to trip you up to get you back in his camp. That's a reality of life. It doesn't mean you're lesser or more. That's just what, that's what happens. But when you choose to follow Jesus and you start listening to God's Word as if He's speaking to you because He is, through the Bible and through prayer and through study, then what happens is God starts to pull you out of Satan's grasp. God starts to make changes in your life so that you are no longer being led by your sinful flesh. But your flesh, listen to this, your flesh does not naturally change. It does not like to change. And often, it digs its heels in and invites a response from your members. What are the members? When it, when it feels threatened, it invites a response from your physical side. It invites a response from your emotional side. And also, it invites a response from your cognitive or your reasoning side. So there's a constant war of who or what has control over you. Is it your flesh? 
that's tempted by Satan and led by your selfish desires? Or is it controlled by your spirit that seeks only to be led by God? Here's the thing. God is more powerful. We all know that. But He allows each of us to make the choice of who we're going to choose to follow. He allows you to choose if you're going to follow after the world and all it's enticing you to go after, or if you're going to choose to follow after Jesus. They are diametrically opposed to one another. And every time that you choose to follow after Jesus, there will be a conflict in your soul and in your nature and in your thoughts, your attitudes, your reactions, your behaviors, and everything you do to approach life. When you follow Jesus, it's not easy. Every part about you that's been seeking after the world does not want to let you go. So there will be conflict. So rather than denying it or making excuses or blaming others, or refusing to take personal responsibility, we must realize that we will face conflict in life. Can we agree on that? Now, if we are open and honest and lay ourselves vulnerable before God, then God can make the necessary changes in our lives to break the grasp of the stronghold that Satan has so that we can cling on to Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14 says it this way. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, when a Christian comes to Jesus, this is precisely what God is trying to do. He's pulling you upward out of the grasp of Satan, out of the grasp of the world, out of the allure and the enticement of the world. He's pulling you upward. Now, herein lies the problem. There are times that people absolutely refuse to change. In fact, how this manifests itself is this. You are we're being influenced by our own fleshly desires. And when that happens, people refuse to apologize. They refuse to acknowledge that they have done anything wrong. They refuse to take personal ownership over what they've done. Or at the very least... They want to pass the blame on to others so that they don't have to shoulder the full responsibility of their actions and their words or their motivations. Now, just looking at that from the outside, you might say, well, that's not a very Christian thing to do. And while those actions are not appropriate, and while they can be very destructive, and they don't help the problem, there are reasons why people respond that way. One reason, of course, is pride and not wanting to believe that they are anything less than what they strive to be, while forgetting the fact that their flesh, by its very nature, is always striving for selfish gain. Whether we realize it or not, our flesh does not want us to follow Jesus. Remember, James tells us that our members within us are always striving against one another. Our flesh is always striving against our spirit. Now listen. The absolute goal of a Christian. Maybe you didn't realize this. One of the most absolute goals of a Christian living in this world is to be so yielded to Christ, so submitted to His will and not your own, that you have an unoffendable heart. You know what that means? That nothing that happens, no matter how unfair or how bad or how wrong or how painful, nothing will offend you. That's what Jesus did. Nothing offended Jesus. He never gave the enemy 
a, a, a room to have a hook in him out of a fence. That's the goal. Yet when you're quick to blame and quick to lash out, refusing to forgive, refusing to just offer grace, refusing to seek a resolution, I hope you understand that your will has a long way to go before it can be truly submitted to God. Now, none of us are perfect. None of us are there all the time. But that's our goal. That's what we're striving to. We're not striving to be just to be okay. We're not striving to be, okay, I'm, I'm okay. No, God says, here's the bar. Strive for that. And when you fall, I give you my grace. But we still got to be to strive for that. But often, the biggest reason why our flesh does not want to admit wrong is because it leaves us vulnerable and completely out of control. Whether you realize it or not, your flesh's greatest fear is for you to lose your control or your perceived sense of control. This unwillingness to give up control is very strong in a lot of people. So how do you know if this is you? How do you know if we're not, um, we're not just talking about someone else? Could this be you? I'll tell you. You see, sometimes we don't even realize why we do the things that we do. Maybe there was a time in your life Maybe when you were younger or not, maybe you remember the incident and maybe you don't even remember it. But maybe something bad happened to you, whether it was by your fault or not, it doesn't matter. But you experienced something that threatened your physical or your emotional or your relational security. Maybe you were in a situation where you were vulnerable and needed someone to intervene, to come alongside of you, to help you, to come to your rescue. But for whatever reason, based on your perspective or even on an actual circumstance, you felt that no one came alongside to the extent that you needed. Consequently, you learned. When I'm vulnerable, I cannot depend on anyone to come alongside of me. So an irrational thought was formed out of this wound. Like white blood cells, an irrational thought attacks anything that it perceives to be a threat, even if it's not true. You know, there's sometimes in conditions in our body where our body destroys the good cells because they think it's a threat. It's what we do when we form an irrational thought. We attack something that we perceive as a threat even when it's, our, it's a help coming to us. It is irrational because it's only fueled by the limited information that you have at the time. And by your limited and often wounded perspective, which leads to assumptions and inaccurate judgments of others and how the world works and evolves and exists around you. It's, a, it's especially irrational because it forces you to think and react and respond in extremes, using words like always or never or they'll always do this, or they'll never do this, to describe people and their actions. Irrational thoughts lead to irrational fears, which lead to behaviors that could be very destructive to you and to others. The irrational thought, for example, might be, people will always let me down when I'm in need. This in turn leads to an irrational fear such as, I must never allow myself to be vulnerable again. I must never lose control or give up control of my life. 
To be vulnerable is the absolute worst feeling in the world and I must prevent it from happening at all costs. The reason why it's irrational is because it attaches itself to an assumption that you begin to base all of your behaviors and thoughts and reactions on. Do you understand what this leads to? The assumption is if I'm vulnerable and no one comes to my need or to help me or to rescue me, then it's the worst feeling in the world. So I declare, subconsciously or consciously, I declare or I vow I will never allow myself to be vulnerable again. I will never allow myself to be out of control again. Here's the conflict. The only way that we receive Jesus, who is our answer, who is our hope, who is our light, the only way that we can receive Him to receive forgiveness and to receive grace and healing is to be completely vulnerable before God. So now we have a huge problem where your wound is actually preventing you from getting the healing that you need. So these thoughts and fears, which we think are saving us or preserving us, are actually preventing us from fully receiving God and all that He desires to do in you and through you to complete the good work that He began in you. But also understand that irrational thoughts and fears are not only present in people who have obvious wounds. They're not only present in people who have obvious shortcomings or obvious problems. At various levels, we all are invaded by irrational thoughts and fears. This is the work of our members inside of us, as James noted. Influencing us to make snap decisions, rash judgments, emotion-based pronouncements, and false assumptions based on our limited perspective at the time, which usually minimizes or completely ignores God. So let me ask you, how are we the most vulnerable? It's when we admit we did something wrong. We are completely vulnerable. When we admit we made a bad choice. We admit, when we admit that we sinned. When we admit that we overstepped our bounds. Or that we acted in a way that we should have. Do you remember when you were, a young, when you were younger? And you did something wrong? Let me tell you what happened when I did something wrong at home. My mom would say, you just wait till your dad gets home. I don't know if that's still being said today, but man, it put the fear in me. Because you know what? It was no longer, it was no longer in my control. I had no idea what was happening. I was, I, I was operating out of this fear of what could happen. And it's not that your body doesn't like to be in that place out of control. And so you think that your flesh never wants to admit that it's wrong. The reason that we have this, why this is a feeling of vulnerability is because we don't know the consequence that we will have to pay from admitting or confessing that we were wrong. Then our flesh begins interpreting to us how others might respond. If I say this, your mind tells you, well, if you do this, this might happen. I know it doesn't just happen to me. We tell ourselves, people might be very angry with me. They could judge me harshly. They could cast me out of their relationship or friendship. People might want nothing to do with me. 
They might treat me poorly. I might, my reputation might be ruined. My social standing might be ruined. Their perception of me might be destroyed. These are all the things that we tell ourselves why we can't be vulnerable. When we refuse to be vulnerable, we refuse to apologize. We refuse to confess faults or take personal responsibility. We keep making excuses and keep blaming others. Thus, we refuse to allow God to make changes in us. Yet, this is the essential part, understand, this is the essential part of being a disciple and follower of Jesus. We willingly humble ourselves and submit to Jesus so that He can make us more like Him. If we don't change, we stay like ourselves and not like Jesus, who we claim to be following. In fact, an absolute necessity for submitting to Jesus and following Him is to be able to freely say, I am wrong. Right? We've joked about it before. We've all seen happy days. You remember Fonzie? I am wrong. I am wrong. I couldn't say it. But that's really us as, as our flesh doesn't want to admit it. We just, oh, let's just move on. No. If we want to become more like Jesus, we need to say, I am wrong and He is right. Jesus is right. I want to become more like Him. If you have a problem saying that you are wrong, then I question whether you're following Jesus. Because only He is right 100% of the time. God has to make changes in every single one of us so that we can become more like Him and less like the world. But we have to be willing to acknowledge when we sin, when we make mistakes, when we go too far, when we react in ungodly ways with impure motives, or when we operate out of irrational thoughts and fears and judgments and assumptions because we made a a determination based only on the limited knowledge that we had. We have to be willing to acknowledge this before God or else the enemy will forever have his grasp on us. And God cannot pull us out of his hands. This is not because of God's limited power. It's because of our unwillingness to trust God. It's because of our stubbornness to stick to lies and refusals and blaming and excuses. You see, out of God's infinite grace and mercy, He will not override our will. He gives us a free will to choose to follow Him so that He can pull us from Satan's grasp. Or we can choose to follow the enemy and continue to feed our minds and our thoughts and our spirits with irrational thoughts and fears and assumptions that are not based on the truth of God's Word. Rather, they are formed by the enemy tempting us to only consider our skewed perspective with only our limited and biased information that we have. When we are challenged or have a difference of opinion than someone else, we may experience a variety of emotions. Yet God, understand this, emotions are not sin. They're not. How do I know? Because God gave them to us. God gave us emotions to express when our needs or desires have not been met. So emotions are not bad. But how we respond to our emotions or how we react or how we are led by our emotions 
can be destructive if we don't yield ourselves and our will to God. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 say this. It's our memory verse for today. It says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Notice that it doesn't say, don't be angry. It does not say that anger is a sin in and of itself. It says, in your anger, do not sin. In other words, in your anger, or in your emotion, or in your hurt, and in your pain, let that drive you to God not to sin. We have the choice. Am I going to pursue God even more because I don't understand that I'm hurt? Or am I going to pursue the world and pursue blaming others? We should allow that emotion to drive us to God to get His healing and His wisdom and His understanding and His perspective. Yet the Word also instructs us to not let the sun go down on our anger against someone else. This is hugely important. And it's the main reason why there is destruction and destructive conflict in marriages and families and relationships and in the church. The reason why hurt turns into offense and then gets entrenched into bitterness and unforgiveness is because way too often we let the sun go down on our anger. You see, if you have an argument with your spouse, and you don't resolve the anger before you go to bed. While you sleep, the devil will interpret your spouse's character to you during the whole night, filling your mind and poisoning your soul, consciously or subconsciously, with assumptions and judgments and compromised beliefs that seek to divide and destroy your relationship. Did you ever wake up and someone was mad at you and you didn't know why? It happens to all of us. Or you're mad at someone you don't know why. It's the enemy has poisoned your mind because you let the sun go down on your anger. If you let the sun go down on your anger with your spouse or your parent or your child or your brother or sister, your neighbor, your fellow Christian, your pastor, you give the devil a foothold in your life. With this grasp, the devil will continually trip you up. If we refuse to confess and own up to mistakes and bad choices, if we refuse to apologize for false assumptions and judgments against others, if we refuse to be vulnerable with those whom we love, then we're fooling ourselves to think that we're preventing our states of vulnerability. You are rarely more vulnerable than when you're sleeping. This is where we are often attacked in dreams and thoughts as our mind attempts to process our thoughts and feelings and experiences in our days and our lives. Vulnerability happens whether you realize it or not. The only difference is where it takes place. But if you are willing to be vulnerable with God, He is faithful to come to your aid and bring healing and bring direction. He is able to come into your dreams and give you peace that's let you sleep in peace. He is able to cover you each and every day no matter what happens so that you walk in peace and you're surrounded by the graces and mercies of Christ. 
If, however, you choose to resist vulnerability at all costs, what you're saying is that you don't trust God. You don't trust that he will come alongside of you. And the only one you can trust, you tell yourself, the only one I can trust is myself. Yet this is how the Bible describes the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, he is called the paraclete, which literally means one who comes alongside. Therefore, I ask you, how can God intervene in a situation where you refuse to trust him? The truth is, that he can't. He will not override your will. You have to choose to follow him. We have to choose to believe the best about someone until we have more information. We have to choose to deal with conflict instead of avoiding it. We have to choose to be resolution-minded. The Bible teaches us clearly what to do when we have offenses, concerns, or questions about others. I teach on this all the time, all the time. If we have an offense that's tempting us to interpret someone else's character or someone else's motivation in unhealthy ways, we are commanded to go directly to that person for the purpose of restoration. Matthew 18:15. Moreover, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him or go and tell her, his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained a brother. If she hears you, you have gained a sister. And while this verse talks about if someone sins against you, the main point of this teaching is that if there is anything between you and another brother or another sister in Christ, it affects your relationship. If there's anything, it becomes a wedge in your relationship. Oftentimes that wedge between the two of you is your offense. It's your doubt or it's your false assumption or it's your judgment. If you value that relationship and respect the person that you are at odds with, then you owe it to them by the truth of that passage to go directly to them and face the conflict head on with grace. The Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. Do not fool yourself like many other people do. I've heard Christians say things like this, I'm just going to take the high road. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're taking the high road by not addressing a doubt or an offense or a judgment that you are making against someone else based solely on your perspective. Remember, if you let the sun go down on your anger without resolving it, the devil will interpret the character of that person to you throughout the day, throughout the night, and you won't even realize it. During idle thoughts and at random times. And then anything that seems to link to that assumption gets added to your judgment of that person, reinforcing what the enemy wants you to believe about that person. Yet that person cannot defend himself if you don't come to him and only keep cementing your judgment against him. This leads to you acting out of your judgment and making decisions based on your limited knowledge. No one wins at this point, and resolution is not possible. Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. It's often quoted, but very... Uh, 
not very well understood or applied properly. Matthew 7 and 1, verses 2, Jesus is speaking on the Sermon of the Mount. It's in three chapters in Matthew. And he says this. He says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. First of all, I want to make this clear. We are instructed to judge sin. God gives us the Bible to let us know what sin is, and we're we're supposed to judge if something is sin or whether it's not, based on the Bible. But when Jesus says that we are not to judge, what he means is we are not to judge someone else's character or to judge their intentions or their motivations or their reasons for doing things. We are not to make assumptions about them because of the limited knowledge that we have. Only God can see the whole picture. Only He can see every perspective before and after it happens. Only God can see every aspect of the situation. Only God knows what is in someone else's heart. Only God can see the entirety of a situation from all angles, including the facts that we don't have to our disposal. Only God can see someone else's past and hurts, and wounds. Only God has all the information. We do not. Therefore, He tells us, because you don't have it all, don't judge. Unless, He says, you can judge. But if you do judge, then what you're saying is, to God, I want you to judge me in the same way, in the same unfair way, in the same inaccurate way as I'm judging someone else. Therefore, instead of rushing into judgment or staying quiet and harboring an offense that affects how you treat another person, whether you realize it or not, you can think, I just took the high road, but it's going to affect how you think of that person, whether you realize it or not. We are commanded to go to others and seek restoration. It's not about who's right. It's about, I want to gain that brother. I want to gain that sister. That's what Jesus talks about. While we are on this earth, we will be faced with conflict. And we will have to choose if we are willing to face it and work through it with grace, humility, and honesty. We will have to choose if we're willing to seek restoration for the better of all and for the better of ourselves. We will have to choose to admit that we have falsely judged others when we do that. Or wrongly acted or spoken out of false assumptions that we made. And failed to come directly to someone when it happens. But conflict doesn't always happen because of a sin against someone else. Sometimes it just happens when we are burned out by life's challenges and demands. Anybody ever feel burned out by life's challenges and demands? Anybody feeling that now? We we do, right? As we get tired and succumb to, at some level, to different stresses and different challenges, one of the first things to be affected is our communication with others. Why? It's because when we're feeling tired and burnout out and not thing, we begin to focus more on ourselves and focus more on our needs. That's just, just natural. And so when we focus more on ourselves, our communication with others suffers. But when communication suffers, the information that's needed to make decisions is compromised. Thus, we have limited perspectives. 
And so when decisions are made without all the accurate information, things don't function well. People get their feelings hurt and poor decisions are made. Now understand that this is not done intentionally. It's done because there was a communication breakdown somewhere. And it's somewhere in that relationship there was a breakdown. And as a result, conflict ensues. So we can choose to deny it. If you look at the front of your bulletin, if you grabbed one, did you see the picture on the front of your bulletin? Yeah, that's what happens when we, when we deny that there's conflict in our life. We become like that ostrich that puts his head in the sand, believing if I can't see the problem, there's nothing going on. It'll just pass. Or we can be honest with God and with ourselves and say we know there's going to be conflict wherever we are in life. Our choice is to deal with it in a godly way and to face it head on with grace and honesty. Not with the hopes of punishing someone else. Not with the hopes of proving that you are right and someone else is wrong. Not with the hopes of holding grudges or making excuses or blaming others but with the biblical hope of restoration and redemption and forgiveness and grace because God forgave us and extended His grace to us. But what this takes is willingness. Do you know that our willingness can limit God? Now you may say, how can that be? How can God be limited? Can't God do all things? Doesn't the Bible say that with God all things are possible? Sure it does. But it doesn't say that all things are guaranteed. It says that all things are possible. And the reason that they are possible is because of our willingness to trust God and to believe Him for restoration as we pattern our lives after Jesus. All things are possible when we are willing to conduct our lives in all we do and say and think and believe according to how we are instructed in the Bible. While Jesus was making the circuit and calling disciples and walking around and doing miracles, he came back to his hometown of Nazareth. He came to his own people where he grew up, where he grew up with. And they said things to him like, Jesus, I know him. He's a carpenter's boy. He's nothing special. We know his mother and his father, and his brothers and sisters. He's not sent from God. He's not the Messiah. You see, what happened is they were unwilling to believe that God had sent the answer that they were praying for right to them, to bless them personally. Matthew thirteen fifty eight says, And Jesus did not many muddy works. He did not do many muddy works there because of their unbelief. He was limited by their unwillingness to believe who He was. That means in order for Jesus to move in your life and in my life and the life of this church and the life of the community and the life of the world, He will not override our will. He needs our willingness. In order for God to help this church overcome conflict, in order for God to help your marriage overcome conflict, to help your family, your business, your own individual life to overcome conflict. 
It requires a willingness to humble ourselves and to come to one another seeking to gain information and a perspective that we do not have. It requires our willingness. We have to be honest. No excuses. No blaming others for choices that we made. No denial, but our sincere willingness to acknowledge our faults and believe that God can and God does desire to redeem us and heal us and extend grace to us so that we can extend that same grace to others. That's how the Gospel goes forth in this world. But please understand that if we don't acknowledge our faults, our failings, our mistakes and bad choices, then we will continue to repeat those same things again and again and again. And it will go on for years. It can't just be a blanket, I'm sorry for everything, forgive me, let's move on. We have to acknowledge what we've done and how our words and our actions and our judgments have broken a relationship. Now, a truth in the Bible that many people don't understand is that God says when He forgives you, He remembers your sin no more. That's one of the amazing things, that God can forgive you and He forgets what, he forgets what your sin is. He says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed your sin from you. But for us, we don't forget it. You've heard it said before, forgive and forget. That's not in the Bible. We don't forget our sins even after forgiveness has been granted. There's a reason why God makes us remember what we did. Because if we forgot what we did, we will continue to repeat that same bad behavior, that same bad thought, out of that same wrong assumption, out of that same false judgment, to commit that same bad mistake, that same sin, and break every relationship that we are in. We remember what we did so that we don't repeat it. God does not hold it against us when He forgives us. But if we continue to repeat it, we take God's grace for advantage. Now you know this. I've taught this before and it's in the Bible and you know this. The Bible says that if we confess our sins to God, then He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. That's what God's promise to us is. But I've told you before that there's a linked verse to that that's not often taught in practice. It's in James 5.16. It says, Confess your trespasses or your sins or your wrongdoings or judgments, whatever. Confess those to one another. When you sin against someone else, confess it to them. And then pray for them that you may be healed. This means you confess your sins to God, you're forgiven, but it doesn't mean you're healed. And so if you don't confess to one another and confront one another with judgments you made, then you will not be healed and you'll continue to keep repeating that same sin. When we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, we are healed. We're not just forgiven. We're healed. We don't repeat the same mistakes. We don't see relationships break down. We don't see communication disrupted at that level. And when God heals us, He heals the whole body. He puts things that are out of place back into place. He heals broken bones. He mends hearts. 
He restores relationship. He gives you that joy that the enemy took. So we can be His overflowing joy and spread His gospel with joy so that we can exist as a family that He's called us to be. He breathes new life into the body of Christ when we're willing and trusting Him. He allows each of us the strength to get up and walk so that we can all follow Jesus together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the power of Your Word. God, I pray, God, as these words were shared by You, that You would bring conviction where there needs to be conviction. That You would bring acknowledgement where there needs to be acknowledgement. In any situation, whatever it regards to, God, we know that we are in a constant state of change. So where we have been resistant, help us to be submissive to You. Help us to submit to You so that You can change us to become more like Jesus Christ. Because we walk by faith and not by sight, we're going to choose to thank You by faith for what You're going to do in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, in our churches, in our own relationship with You. We thank You for the redemption and forgiveness and grace. We thank You that You are the anchor in our lives. And as we hold on to that anchor, You will bring us through to glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.